Welcome back to the State of Research. I hope you had some good time off before the start of the semester. And if you've ever traveled through airport security and had a metal detector triggering because of a medical plate or screw you had to have implanted, then this episode could come of interest to you. I've reached out to Nelson Isaacson, a graduate student researcher who works to 3D print bone, a method that could one day replace the need for metal implants for bone injuries. This research project is part of the Vice President for Research PRSE program. The Programs for Research and Scholarly Excellence is a program sponsored by the CSU Research Office, which provides funding to CSU Research Labs so they can afford to take on additional projects and graduate student researchers like Nelson. So, my experience falls far from material science and medicine, but I'm really excited to speak with Nelson to learn more about this field of research which encompasses both of these topics. And I didn't really know what to picture when I discovered his lab 3D prints bone, but I promise you it really is as cool as it sounds. I'm Ty Betts with the Office of the Vice President for Research at CSU, and this is The State of Research. So thanks for joining me today, Nelson. To start, I want to talk a little bit about your time before you came to CSU, and I know you're working in the manufacturing industry. Can you talk a little bit about what you were focused on then? So I worked at an uh, engineering firm up in Minnesota that did uh, secondary case packing specifically. Okay. Um, so the idea that or the example I like to give is think of like how it's made where you see the robots running around everywhere and they, you know, all the machines running. Um, so I helped design some of those. We did, uh, for example, uh, packaging uh, cereal boxes or batteries or um, granola bars, all of that kind of stuff. So I worked a lot with the design of these machines. It was pretty fun. Um, they were pretty intricate. They were, you know, many thousands of parts, a couple million dollars per machine. So they're, okay. they're big projects. Um, <clears throat> but we also... Uh, the goal of that company was to make it a uh, small footprint, very, you know, contained and easy to access. So that was most, that was what my work was. So you're programming machines to package cereals and yogurts and everything that went into the boxes? Yeah. So I did, I did the uh, mechanical design of it. So I designed the robots. I designed the structure of it, um, the flow process, how you get from point A to point B and manipulating the product all the way through. So by okay. the end of it, I was um, leading one of the uh, design groups there specifically awesome. for palletizers. So, How long did you do that for? Um, I did it for two years. Okay, uh, it wasn't too terribly long. Um, I enjoyed it, but I was starting to get a little itching to get out of there. To be honest. Okay. So, is there anything that you sort of took away from your experience with automation and then the manufacturing industry that you take into your research now? So, the big thing that I've, uh, I've gained from it was working in industry in a, a business environment where everything's very timeline driven. You're working with customers. You're suiting their needs, not necessarily your own. Um, they come in with a contract and they say, hey, this is what we want. And you can work with it to a point, but you're kind of within a constrained uh, focus. Yeah. And like I said, a very rather tight timeline sometimes um, <clears throat> where you're much more working on deliverables and you know how it's going to, how everything's going to go. It's just figuring out how to line it up to get there versus, yeah. you know, open-ended in research. <laughs> that <laughs> so. makes sense. <laughs> So you got your undergrad in North Dakota, yep, and then you worked a couple years in industry, yep. And then why'd you decide to ultimately come to CSU? So I had been, uh, I had actually wanted to come to Colorado straight out of my undergrad, um, okay. and it just didn't work out. So when I started looking back into grad schools, um, I had put my name out there. There's a couple of recruitment ways you can mm -hmm. put, you know, put your interest in, and you can get contacted. And I was contacted by my program advisor here, and. Uh, it might be sacrilegious, but I had been looking at Boulder. <laughs> okay. I got contacted by CSU and I looked into it more and I was starting to fall in love with the school. So you I dodged a bullet on that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then I 
yeah, I got in contact with people here and then uh, fell in love with it. I know uh, family in the area and people who have been to Fort Collins and loved it. So, okay, yeah, kind of took a leap and moved out here and fell in love. So Awesome. Can you tell me the name of the program that you're in right now? Uh, Sam D., um, okay. the School of Advanced Material Discovery. Okay. And I'm working on my master's in material science engineering through awesome. that program. So we're going to be talking a little bit about 3D printers for your research, but I also know that you have a 3D printer of your own. So what are some of the things, personal projects you take on with 3D printing? Yeah, so I like to think that I do mostly useful things. I'll do like office organization or if I'll put up like shelves, like, yeah. you know, parametrically designed brackets and all that kind of stuff, ranking and stuff. I have a couple of uh, reptiles, so I'll do like uh, hides for them or like uh, cooling and misting systems type stuff. That's but really I'll be cool. honest, a lot of it is goofy where I'm just like, for example, this morning I printed out like a really buff Pikachu. <laughs> <laughs> you did that just this morning? Just this oh morning. Um, wow. And like over the weekend I printed like an ocarina from Legend of Zelda. Just That's awesome. A little rinky-dink stuff. It's pretty fun. Yeah, this podcast is going to be part talking about your research, part you trying to convince me to get a Nintendo Switch so that I can finally play the latest Zelda So game. worth it. Yeah. <laughs> I was playing mine I'm, this weekend. Yeah, I'm trying to get it. <laughs> So I'd like to dive into uh, to your research now. Can you describe what the goal of your project is here at CSU? So my research is in uh, 3D printing bones, essentially. Um, there's a subset of injuries or trauma that a human being or even any living creature can sustain, any living creature with a skeleton can sustain, uh, known as a critical bone defect. And essentially, it's an injury that is too large for your body to heal naturally. So there are ways to heal it currently that are, they work, but they have additional complications. So we're looking into uh, customizing 3D printed scaffolds to be able to implant and uh, essentially help aid the healing of this region without putting in, you know, say like a steel bar or something like that. Okay, and what bone injuries are we talking about? Could it be just from breaking your leg, yep. skiing, uh, or something like that? If you do a significant enough injury, if mm -hmm. you do like a green splint injury or something like that, this isn't what we're aiming at. This is more of like severe trauma. Um, for example, um, my wife was in a car accident a couple of years ago and has a titanium rod in her leg, and that would be a case where this would have been okay. applied. Um, the injuries where you need to start implanting and you mm -hmm. need to start putting these external forces, or in some cases, internal um, structures to be able to heal. Um, like I said, if you do, say, falling and breaking your arm, we can heal that pretty well with a mm -hmm. cast. But if you have, say, uh, a bone disease that is eroding it and you can't actually heal that portion, um, that's where this research would come into play. Gotcha. And we can sort of 3D print something close to bone already, is that correct? But what correct. you're working on is making this material stronger? Correct. So we have um, our basic materials based off of hydroxyapatite. It's a calcium uh, substance, very, very similar to what's already in your bone. And we can print it and hold it together pretty well for non-load bearing uh, areas. So if you were to have, say, even portions of, like, say, your skull, mm -hmm. um, that's not taking, you know, walking loads or structural loads every day, we can implant that. Um, and that has happened in the industry or in the field already. Um, the, the limitations of all that is the load bearing. We can print it um, pretty well. The problem is, is we're using a photocurable polymer, which for anybody who's familiar with that, <laughs> they come out pretty brittle in the end. Okay. So I'm looking at finding ways to print it in different configurations and different uh, structural designs to be able to kind of make up for that limitation. So you actually have the ability to 3D print bone. Do you take advantage of that and make creepy, spooky looking things for inside your apartment or house? Nah, I try to keep it pretty ethical. I don't yeah. take that stuff home. Um, the material is a little bit expensive okay. uh, for now. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So how chemically similar is it to bone? 
Uh, near identical. Okay. Um, the main difference is that in a naturally occurring bone, you have uh, different constituent elements that just pop up seemingly randomly. Um, okay. You have like magnesium and iron and you know different minerals that, as part of the healthy diet and all that, mm. um, which we don't have in our structure. We're, we believe that that'll lead to um, strengthening it and making it stronger, but right now we're working with the base material, which is uh, essentially what makes up your teeth and bones. So, yeah. And is this just a powder that you use to put into the 3D printer? Yeah, so we buy it in a, in a powder form, um, and we mix it with a dispersant and a photocurable resin, and we ball mill it for quite a while. It's about eight hours total to get everything nice and uh, homogenous. And then we can inject it into a syringe, and then it mounts onto a 3D printer. Yeah. So previously you mentioned that this material is... Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but bioresorbable? Yes. Can you explain what that is in relation to when you're actually implant, implanting it into a human? Yeah. So the idea of it is um, being uh, reabsorbable is you would implant it and over time your body would uh, take it in and make it actually part of your bone. Wow. Um, bodies are very good at identifying foreign materials and either expelling them or absorbing them. If they can, if you can use it, you'll generally use it. And if you can't, you'll filter it out some way. Well, we're designing this so that it can be used. Um, long-term, ideally, this would be a situation where you'd put a scaffold in and then a year or two later, you wouldn't be able to see that it was artificial from the outside. From inside, you would see the design porosity if you look closer in x-ray and such. But if you were to look at it with the naked eye, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Your real bone sort of takes it over, starts growing with it? Yep. So as soon as you implant it into a body, um, it begins to calcify. Your body starts to react with it. Um, it starts to uh, join with the existing... Ideally, it starts to join with the existing bone. Um, that's another challenge in the field. But... Uh, over time, I like to use the analogy of vines on a lattice, where you see you put up this you know metal structure initially, and over time the vines just grow to cover it, and you'll see what looks to be a, a grid of vines or some other intricate design. Gotcha. And the current limitation of this is that it's hard to put this technology in a load-bearing place like your leg or femur or something like that. Correct. We can um, when we print the material in bulk, either with our methods or there's a few other method methods you can make it. The material holds up fairly well. You can uh, compress it uh, comparable to a trabecular bone, which is kind of the, a hmm. weaker portion of your bone. Um, we're aiming for cortical bone, which is the strongest type of bone you have, but we can't just put in bulk material. We need to design in uh, specific porosity for to aid in blood flow, for cell proliferation, um, for osteoblasts to be able to attach to it. And by putting in these voids, we need to make it up to about 70% porous and the, with pores that are about 300 microns across. So um, just under a third of a millimeter designed pores. So when you start hollowing it out to that point, it starts introducing a lot of uh, points for fracture okay and so when you start compressing it every one of those narrowed sections becomes a stress concentration and then they begin to break so does it give you a greater respect for our ability as humans just to create the perfect I, bone material well, it is blowing my mind as I mentioned previously i came from industry where i was mm -hmm. working with steels and you know aluminum bars all day yeah. and so a lot of the biology that i've learned um has come within the last six months and i'm continually astounded by how well this works wow. even looking into fracture mechanics of natural bone and how it uh for the material works better than our designed steels that we're using in industry wow. it's, it's quite amazing yeah it seems to be a lot that you can learn just from looking at our bones oh yeah 
So what is your research process like when you're trying to create formations and shapes that are stronger? So um, it was a, initially a lot of looking at the liter, uh, literature, you know, as Isaac Newton said, you stand on the shoulder of giants. Mm-hmm. And plenty of people have done work on this. Yeah. So uh, for my case, what we've done is taken existing geometries and have started to modify them and print them using our own methods and see how well they stack up. A lot of... Um, other researchers have done, say, like selective laser sintering instead of our fluid depo- uh, deposition uh, printing. So it was beginning with picking out these geometries, being able to print them and test them ourselves, and then look at uh, what parameters can we change to either improve or in some cases uh, make the uh, properties worse. Because the more we know about how it affects or how the change is affected, the more you know we can go in the right direction. So when that comes into practice, when you're actually trying to print out this material, is that extremely challenging to get everything correct? What sort of precision do you need for that? Yeah, so the, uh, um, there was a previous grad student in her lab, and her entire thesis was on making this material printable. She spent okay. her entire two years making it work. So there's a lot of conditions that need to be pretty fine-tuned. And right now we have our, our main material works pretty well. We can, we can get it within you know plus or minus a few millimeters regarding uh, setting up the machine. When we're looking into adding a couple of different uh, materials to our to our slurry to be able to strengthen it, but we have to go through most of that two-year process again, but rather but do it fairly quickly to be able to use those. It just changes the rheology of the fluid and such. And if this technology becomes uh, viable in a medical setting, what current methods might it replace? What this is aiming to replace is um, specifically uh graphs putting in with like uh, steel or titanium or such like that okay. or i should say more specifically replacing uh graphs from donor material from don't um people who've recently deceased and okay. have agreed to donate their bodies and we can take bones from those individuals and graft them into patients who need it but that also depends on having somebody around <laughs> or having mm-hmm. a recently deceased that has signed off on the organ donor checklist. Right now, that's rather difficult. There's you know, a large amount of injuries every year throughout the world and we can't necessarily keep up with that. So if we're able to create this 3D printable material with a decent shelf life and install it into hospitals, we can get around that problem. And with any implantation, I imagine there's some risk of an infection. Does this help? I guess less than that risk at all? Yep. So bone is naturally pretty dense. Um, you don't get much blood flow through it. As I mentioned earlier with the human body filtering out impurities, um, that comes from your blood flow. That comes from um, liquid moving through the body. And if you're putting in a dense material that doesn't allow access to it, it gets pretty difficult to remove infection. If we're putting in these scaffolds that have these designed pores into it and already built-in channels for blood perfusion, then that'll help reduce any risks. Um, or reduce the risk of infection. Plus, we know exactly what we're putting into it. You can screen patients pretty well, and you can screen the material that you're putting in, but there's always the risk of the unknown of what exactly is in there. If we have this pure material, then we know exactly what's in it. And what progress have you found in your research so far? Yep, so we've done quite a bit of work with our CAD modeling and a finite element analysis, um, so the computerized side of it, um, testing what geometries will work better, what structures will work better. Um, that's been very heartening, actually. There seems to be um, a a very good way to go. We've begun to print some of these structures. We've shown that we can print uh, support-free. We don't need to put 
um, additional material to say create overhangs or something like that we can print without that which is pretty important overhangs yep so when we're doing uh these materials we have these design pores and it kind of think of like printing out uh, like an arc and or like an arch going over empty space in a lot of <clears throat> normal uh fdm printing like your standard 3d printers um, you need to put some support material underneath it if it gets to be too big of a gap because the material will sag and it won't create that arch that you want. Since we're working with a photocurable polymer, we can create that arch and actually cure it in place. We don't need to put that support in. Okay. That way, With that, we don't have to worry about uh, clogging up our pores as we're going through and printing these structures. And for the bone that you're printing out, why does it need to have so many tiny pores inside of it? So um, to maximize, uh, for two reasons. One, to maximize attachment sites for osteoblasts. They're the cells that your body produces that'll help, that'll attach and start growing new bone. And for blood perfusion through the material. You want to try to keep um, all of the porous spaces within the scaffold all of it connected as one, which is an additional challenge. Instead of having you know several channels going through it, you want it to be one big space. Okay. Um, and also have it open and clear enough that blood would be able to flow through it in a, like a pressurized system, okay. like a blood vessel or a bone. So is there any specialized technology that you need to use to be able to uh, 3D print this bone, or can you do it on sort of any machine? So right now, um, it needs to be fairly specialized. We need a high-precision printer to work with it. We are working, uh, like I said, spaces that our pores are 300 microns across, and the entire structure is on the scale of a couple of millimeters. Uh, we wow. need to keep that precision. And <clears throat> since we're printing liquid deposition and not uh, like a solid deposition, there's there's quite a bit of opportunity for the our slurry and our fluid to ooze as we're printing. So we need to make sure everything is kind of wrapped up really tight as we're doing these small, minuscule structures. If we're printing out something, you know, say something that I print at home where it's, you know, a goofy statue or something mm -hmm. like that, I don't need to worry about the internal precision because it's just for show. If yeah. I'm printing at something that has to adapt biologically and has to work with a human body, we need to hit those uh, precision levels pretty consistently. And I imagine you can't just go online and buy a 3D printer meant for 3D printing bone, right? Is this something that you had to develop in your lab? Yeah, so we uh, we reached out to a manufacturer that created a, they have a multi-headed printer where you can swap out for different materials. And this is something, I mean, they've never worked with before, so it's new for them as well. So we have one of their liquid deposition heads that we've slightly modified to work with our materials. And then we've been working pretty closely with them, adjusting uh, the different, say, the G-code or the parameters within the control software to be able to work with the material so they're learning about this just as much as we are as we go through it but yeah it was something that we bought and then modified and are working with the manufacturer to be able to do very cool and are there any uh takeaways that you have learned from this research project that you're going to take with you to future projects i would i'll sound uh, idealistic for a second but the the creativity and the aims that people are shooting for in research kind of astounds me. I'm mm -hmm. fairly new to it. I've been doing it for about seven months now. Like I said, I was working in industry. I wasn't in the academia track previously. Um, <clears throat> but just seeing how passionate people are about this, this isn't like I'd worked for a couple of years in an environment where it was all about the bottom line and the dollar. Mm -hmm. And you're, you know, trying to shave a half a percent off some big company's cost. Yeah. And now we're doing something where it's, it's actually reaching for a rather noble goal, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. That's what drew me to this is, you know, the tech I was working with before was really cool. There are some really intricate machines that I had built, but now actually 
the application of it, I think, is so much more noble, in my opinion. And I see it kind of across the board from the different labs I've worked with. I've rotated through a couple, and obviously I have colleagues in the different areas, and I talk to them. And I'm, to be quite honest, I'm just astounded by the passion that goes into it for something truly greater than themselves. Yeah, and I think the application of this work is really exciting. Do you know how far off this technology might take to find itself in a hospital or medical setting? Yeah, we're still a ways off on it. Um, And that is, I think that could be true of any technology that'll be eventually in humans. Mm -hmm. Um, You go through so many different trials. I think this specifically is still a ways out in regards to load bearing. It's a problem that a lot of research labs have been working on, um, us included, and then many across the world. So there's been a lot of great progress that's being made, but until we can guarantee that it's at the same level as a human bone, I think there's a little skittishness. You can't risk it, yeah. Yeah, and understandably so. We have techniques that work. We think we can produce one that's better, but until we can prove that and consistently prove that, it'll be it'll be a bit before it's in human trials. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to see where this research takes us. Thanks for so much for talking with me today, Nelson. Yeah, thanks for inviting me out. I think what stood out to me when speaking with Nelson is that our bodies are extraordinary engineers. The chemicals our bodies use to create bone and the shape the structures take amaze even material science engineers like Nelson. And it sounds like this method to heal bone injuries is definitely going to be adopted by the medical community. It's just a matter of when. And I'm super excited to see where this tech takes us in the coming years. Not to say I'm looking to try it out myself, but still it'll be cool to see this technology find its way into the medical world. Thanks for listening to another episode of The State of Research. If you missed our last episode over break, consider listening to forest policy expert Courtney Schultz walk us through the complicated implementation of prescribed burns. And keep a lookout for our next episode at CSE Research on Instagram to keep up to date with The State of Research.